I love to study dermatology in the Bible. Perhaps the greatest dermatology story from antiquity is a story that was referenced this morning, the story of Naaman. It's a story abounding in contrast, a muddy river that cleans and clean rivers that don't. One man with leprosy comes to a prophet and leaves cured of leprosy. Another man without leprosy comes to the prophet but leaves cursed with leprosy. It shows one man seeking to give away a fortune ends up keeping it while a different man seeking to gain fortune ends up only with misfortune. It's the story of a Hebrew slave who has answers and a Hebrew king who does not. It's a story that speaks to a serious dermatologic problem in Naaman that uncovers a more serious cardiologic problem in Gehazi. It's a story that speaks to all medical missionary workers. In some respects, Naaman is every patient we see and Gehazi is the medical missionary we must not be. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, as we study Again, delving into a familiar story, I pray that you'll give us unfamiliar thoughts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Like Cyrus after him, God could say of this heathen gentleman, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Any success either saint or sinner has comes from God. In every area of life, the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Josephus tells how Naaman gave Deliverance to Syria and became a great man. He states that Naaman was the certain man who drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness, resulting in the death of King Ahab. Ellen White hints at this in the book Prophets and Kings. His deadly aim was not simply a lucky shot on a lucky day. The verse continues, he was also a mighty man in valor. He had the world by the tail. Everything was going well. He was successful, popular, wealthy. But if the story quit there, there'd be no story. Naaman would have simply been one of the countless unknowns. He would have lived, he would have died. His grave would be lost, he would be forgotten. There would not be a trace of him. All his past successes would mean nothing. Worldly fame and prosperity, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, means nothing. It's not lasting. I'm not able to tell you whether Elisha violated HIPAA in recording this story. But after telling of Naaman's valor, Elisha adds, he was a leper. In leprosy was both incurable and deadly. Naaman could conquer the enemies of Syria without, but he couldn't conquer the enemy within. Here, as in so many areas of life, fame and fortune mean nothing. So often we look at life backward. Naaman thought his leprosy was a tragedy. His wife thought it was a tragedy. The king of Syria thought it was a tragedy. But that leprosy was to bring Naaman his greatest blessing. In the future life, the mysteries that here have annoyed and disappointed us will be made plain. We shall see that our seemingly unanswered prayers and disappointed hopes have been among our greatest blessings. Christ will work through those who can see mercy in misery, gain in loss. When the light of the world passes by, privilege will be discerned in hardship, order in confusion, success in apparent failure, calamities will be seen as disguised blessings, woes 
is mercies. David put it this way, before I was afflicted I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. The Syrians and the Israelites were in a state of war. Naaman's leprosy did not make him slacken his warfare against the Israelites in the least. We're told, and the Syrians had gone out by companies. They stole, they pillaged, they robbed, they raped, they murdered. The Israelites were crying out to God for him to raise up and destroy the Syrians and deliver his people. They were looking for God to provide a hero soldier, a Joshua, a Gideon, a Jephthah to lead his people to victory. But God had another plan. He would bypass the Syrians' prejudice. He provided a hero slave. Like Naaman's leprosy, her capture appeared to be a great tragedy. We don't know her, her aid. The Hebrew expression in the passage would mean the youngest daughter. She would have been unmarried, but could have been of marriageable age. Perhaps she was a teen. The Hebrew word translated little could be emphasizing her size, petite. Or it could be emphasizing her age, her youthfulness. The word means insignificant. She was an insignificant nobody. She's still a nobody, a nameless slave. But the God who delights in using worms to thrash mountains delights to take the unimportant, the marginalized, the insignificant, the ignored, and the poor to accomplish great things for him. This girl was kidnapped and like Joseph was sold as a slave to the enemies of Israel. This was more frightening and far more dangerous for a girl than a fellow. She had no rights. She was despised property. She could not hope for justice. But like Joseph, whose story she had heard from her mother's knee, she determined to be faithful to the God of heaven. As a teenager, she would have been born about the time of the revival of primitive godliness among the remnant in Israel following the showdown at Mount Carmel on Sinai by Elijah, I should say, by Mount Carmel by Elijah. Her parents may have been in the crowd that saw the fire of heaven flash on the altar and consume it. And the message God sent through the prophet Elijah was not in vain. It produced a young person that God could trust on an important but dangerous mission to Syria. Naaman and his wife observed this slave who lived her religion. She worked hard. She was uncomplaining. But as the children's storybook says, when they worshiped their idols, she prayed to the God of heaven. She not only lived her religion, she talked about her religion as well. And she said to her mistress, would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria? for he would recover him of his leprosy. Bible religion, you see, is practical religion. As James assured us, Bible faith is not simply advising someone to be clothed and fed. It seeks to clothe and feed. It seeks the good of our enemies and prays for them. And Bible religion is not ashamed of the spirit of prophecy. She didn't hide her belief in the spirit of prophecy. Though she could cite no peer-reviewed literature for her statement, with full confidence she presented the spirit of prophecy as the solution to Naaman's health problem. Naaman did not dismiss this information. He had never heard it before and may have thought he had uncovered a carefully guarded secret in Israel. Those words of the Hebrew slave were carried all the way to Ben-Hadad II, then king of Syria. And after the king listened to Naaman, he told him, 
go and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. Naaman departed in the official chariot surrounded by soldiers and attendants guarding both him and the payment for his healing he brought with him. It was a several day journey from Damascus to Samaria and would require food and lodging. In addition, he took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. I looked this up and the worth of this, 750 pounds of silver would be over 400,000 US dollars today. And 150 pounds of gold would be over 4,140,000 US dollars. Naaman was willing to give a fortune for his health. Nearly 400, four, more than four and a half million dollars. That is quite a doctor's fee. With a letter and with the cash, Naaman set off to Israel, an official ambassador on official business. There was little communication between the warring kings of Syria and Israel. It would be humbling for the king of Syria to ask a favor of the king of Israel. It would obligate the Syrians to Israel. So Ben-Hadad disguised his request in the form of a command. Short and to the point he wrote, now when this letter is come unto thee, behold I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. It was equally difficult for the king to receive Naaman. Leprosy, you see, was the Ebola virus of Israel. There were strict public health rules isolating lepers that were rigorously enforced in Israel. There was not only loathing, there was fear. And the king was being asked to receive this high Syrian official who should not even be within the city walls, let alone in the king's court. The king of Israel saw in Naaman both an insult and a trap. The letter was not asking that the king of Israel himself heal Naaman. It was requesting that the king of Israel open up the resources within his kingdom for healing lepers. Ben-Hadad assumed the king of Israel would know how to do this. He assumed that a king would know what a captive slave would know. But the shameful truth was that King Jehoram, the youngest son of Ahab and Jezebel, knew less about the benefits of the spirit of prophecy than a slave girl. And because he didn't understand God's comprehensive medical missionary evangelism, he couldn't recognize a witnessing opportunity when it stared him in the face. He should have taken Naaman's eyes off the king of Israel and focused them on the God of Israel, but he failed to do this. When the king of Israel had read the letter, he rent his clothes. Calling his counselors together, he began to talk about his favorite subject, his favorite theme, himself. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man, should, man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. I, me, I, me, poor me. He took the letter seriously, not as an opportunity to help. He couldn't even imagine a real request for help. He took it as a pretext for the next Israeli-Syrian war, and he was very upset. It was a big deal when a king tore his clothes, his expensive clothes. You only tore your clothes in the greatest distress is death or disaster. And the news spread far and wide. And it was so, when Elisha, the man of God had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? 
there was no reason to be upset. Introduce Naaman to the spirit of prophecy. Let him come now to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. The king granted permission for Naaman to see Elisha. Entering Elisha's address into his GPS, Naaman left the palace for the humble home of Elisha. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. What a contrast between the simple, small dwelling of the prophet and the opulent palace of Naaman, the defense minister of Syria. There were no visible guards at the door of Elisha's home. Naaman expected to be, be greeted. He expected red carpet treatment, but there was no red carpet. There was no one waiting expectantly for him. Instead, he clambered out of his chariot and walked to Elisha's door and knocked. No history was taken. There was no physical examination. No biopsy was done to confirm the clinical impression. He wasn't even sent for nerve conduction studies. The important prophet Elisha didn't even come to the door. Instead, Naaman saw Elisha's PA. Sometimes we think that we need to be more important, more credentialed to effectively minister to important people. But in this story, we are reminded again that God often entrusts simple people with the important messages for the wealthy. First it was a slave girl, then it was Elisha's assistant that communicated with the high and mighty Naaman. I said Naaman saw Elisha's physician's assistant, his PA, but that's not really true. He saw Elisha's medical assistant who gave him a prescription which read, go and wash in Jordan seven times and a wonderful promise was given him, thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. That was it, 10 second encounter, short prescription. But deep and important spiritual lessons were taught in this encounter. God did not simply want to cure Naaman's body, he wanted to cleanse his soul. In the sign language of the Bible, to be clean physically was to illustrate being holy spiritually. Lepers were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel because they were unclean. They did not have access to its blessings and privileges. Naaman need not remain excluded. He could be clean. But Naaman didn't understand this. He felt insulted. His pride was wounded and he felt there had been no respect for him in his position in Syria, you, you don't just send a medical assistant to care for a VIP. Elisha was not providing Naaman the community standard of care. Besides, Dapsone is the drug of choice, not hydrotherapy. Naaman's swift reaction was completely predictable. Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Even three millennia ago, people had a certain idea in mind for miraculous healings. The healer comes out, prays, puts his hand on the site of the disease. The healing power flows through the healer's hands to the sick. That is what the so-called faith healers have always done. Naaman may have already been to see the Syrian ben, Benny Hinn of his day, but he had not been healed. But God uses all sorts of ways to heal people. He may use health education. He might use a poultice of figs. He might use spittle to make an eye paste. 
He may use herbs or hydrotherapy. He may use sunlight, exercise, and fresh air. He may use diet. He may use surgery. He may use radiation therapy. He may use topical creams or internal pills. He may use injections. He may use the laying on of hands. Don't make Naaman's mistake. Never limit God to how he must heal someone. Twice the inspired writer mentions Naaman's rage. First his scowl, then his muttering under his breath, and finally his angry outburst. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Over the highway, anciently, the distance between Samaria and Damascus was about 200 kilometers. And directly on the route, about a hard day's journey, 70 kilometers from Samaria, they would cross the Jordan. The servants knew they had some time. They watched as Naaman's anger slowly dissipated. And finally, the opportune moment to talk came, and they respectfully asked, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Naaman may have said nothing. Pride was struggling with humility. But when they finally arrived at the Jordan, then he went down and dipped himself seven times according to the saying of the man of God and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. The record doesn't tell us if he saw a little response after each wash. But on the seventh wash, he was clean with a skin as healthy and smooth as a child's. His healed skin was now younger than his liver and his heart. Gratitude replaced his anger. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. In the presence of all his servants, he confessed his belief in the God of Israel, the God of the nation he had been seeking to overthrow. He confessed his disbelief in the gods of Syria, the gods he had been worshiping all his life and the gods whose cause he had been attempting to promote. With conviction, he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And then he offered Elisha rich gifts. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But the gifts of God are free. Naaman's leprosy represents our sinfulness and Jesus offers to cleanse us from sin without money and without price. And Elisha, without hesitation, instantly replied with the firmness and even the very words of Elijah, his former master. As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. Elisha, the servant of Elijah, had taken not just Elijah's words, but his principles to heart. He was a worthy successor to that great prophet. He lived in the very presence of God, before whom I stand. Though Naaman urged, he could not turn Elisha from this refusal. There was another important lesson that should not be overlooked in Elisha's refusal. Elisha had extended no great, expended no great effort in this cure, and he would accept no payment for small services rendered. Naaman then asked for something amazing. He asked for the dirt from Israel. How entirely changed he was. 
The dirt of Israel mudding the waters of the Jordan was what he had angrily denounced. Now he requests this same Israel, Israel dirt. He was a new creature. His tastes were changed. What he once loved, he now hated. What he had hated, he now loved. Medical evangelism is such a versatile tool. In the hand of God, it's the entering wedge of medical evangelism, but it's also the reaping tool of the harvest. And Naaman now desires to make an altar to the Lord, publicly acknowledging his entire conversion. He told Elisha, thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Elisha's servant watched this amazing transaction, but instead of seeing souls won for eternity, he saw only dollars lost for time. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, not out loud, but to himself, behold, my master hath spared Naaman this Syrian. I imagine Gehazi almost spit out the hateful words in his mind, this Syrian. The Syrians under Naaman's command had been robbing and plundering the Israelites. This was a God-given opportunity for Elisha to even the score. My master has spared Naaman this Syrian in not receiving at his hand that which he brought. Even in his thoughts, however, Gehazi was confused. Although he referred to Elisha as my master, Elisha wasn't his real master, for he did not perform his master's will. The words my master should have stopped him right there, but they didn't. Like those who pray to Christ, Lord, Lord, his real master was himself. He lived for himself, he served himself, but he was self-deceived. He thought he was serving God and Elisha. There's something interesting about his next words. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. How unlike Elijah and Elisha, he had adopted their words as the Lord liveth, but he had rejected their principles. He did not live in the presence of God. He did not say as the Lord liveth before whom I stand. The mantle that had passed from Elijah to Elisha could never be passed to Gehazi. Gehazi may have rationalized that Elisha had missed a providential opportunity to further their missionary work. But he was to learn the truth of Proverbs, he that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. Putting his thoughts into actions, Gehazi began to run after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? Gehazi replied, All is well. Then Gehazi began his tale. Professing to be on an errand from Elisha, he said, My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there to be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. How easy it is to cover our greed with some good purpose. What better purpose than giving to the poor? The poor need to be helped. It's our duty. We do need to assist with worthy student funds. But I repeat how easy it is to cover our greed with some good purpose. Judas did it. The great religious isms do it. Revolutionaries claim to be helping the poor. Populist politicians claim to be helping the poor. Governments use the same line. The worst laws, the worst taxes, all supposedly to help the poor, except poor seem to get poor. People cover their greed with some good purpose because it works. It fools people, and it worked with Naaman. 
His response was everything that Gehazi could have hoped for. He offered to give more than Gehazi had requested. And Naaman said, be content, take two talents. Though inwardly delighted, Gehazi affected reluctance as Naaman urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and with two changes of garments. And then came a problem when Naaman sent two of his servants to carry the gift. You know the story. Gehazi thought he solved this problem by sending the servants back and hiding his fraudulently obtained booty. Though the Bible says, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, Gehazi thought he could cover his sins and still prosper. But he couldn't. Because you see, his actions had been videoed. When my oldest daughter became a teenager, I realized I needed family time. So I stopped my hospital practice, dropped hospital committees and responsibilities, and began doing independent medical examinations for judges. This left my weekends and evenings free for the family. I saw patients with work comp injuries and other personal injuries. And insurance companies had private investigators secretly videoing about 10% of these patients. Sometimes I was given the surveillance videos to watch of these people. I'll never forget one video that I reviewed just before examining the patient. It showed the patient only two days before working on his house, carrying heavy objects, moving his neck around, lifting back freely without any apparent difficulty or pain. The patient was completely unaware he was being videoed, and he was still unaware of the video when I saw him in my office. When I examined the patient, he came into my office moving slowly. He couldn't move his neck, couldn't move his back. And when I asked him if he had ever been able to do activities I had just watched him do, he said he had not been able to do them since his injury. Of course, he was lying. I had the video that proved it. And Gehazi didn't realize that he had been videoed. He didn't know that this was going to be his last day of work. He didn't know that his fraud would ruin his future, his reputation, and his family. He did not guess that the pittance of silver and changes of garment he received would cost him everything of value in his life. Still acting the part, he came in to see Elisha, affecting nonchalance. In commenting on Gehazi, we are told it is seldom that one sin will stand alone or be restricted in the range of transgression to one precept or one prohibition of the moral law. There's ever a complication of disobedience which leads the perverted conscience to a greater length of entanglement by entering to greater temptations and sinning more and more. Like the most effective mousetraps we've found that are glue. And the more the mouse struggles to escape, the more his body gets entangled in the glue. And Satan sins are mousetrap glues. When Elisha asked, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? Gehazi didn't dream this simple question was his final offer of repentance. No bells toiled, tolled. No trumpets blared. No sirens sounded. How little we recognize the importance of seemingly insignificant transactions of life. Gehazi's answer revealed his major concern was not for his soul's salvation, but to escape detection and punishment for his crime. Day by day, year by year, in the little decisions of life, Gehazi compromised his principles. 
Little by little, the creeping crud of covetousness and avarice took over more and more of Gehazi's soul. For years, Elisha had seen this plague spot in Gehazi's character. Gehazi should have been terminated long before, but Elisha kept praying for him. Like a father and his son, Elisha longed for Gehazi's conversion. With a sadness and soberness that we can't imagine, Elisha listened to Gehazi's reply, Thy servant went no whither. With that lie, the sun set on Gehazi's day of opportunity. God was not interested in Gehazi's lip service. God's mercy so long despised would end with fearful judgment. Sorrowfully, Elisha had to declare the decision from the judge of the universe, a judgment that could never be reversed, a judgment for time and for eternity. Went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servant and maidservants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. We can hear Elisha's question echoing through the corridors of time to our own day. Is it a time to receive money? Is it a time for wealth building? Gehazi's seeking wealth was first foolish, and second, it was fraudulent. It was foolish for in a moment Gehazi's apparent gains were seen to be lost. In a moment, his treasures were swept away. Moses in his prayer said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Life on earth is temporary, death a certainty. Since the introduction of sin, there's never been a time to focus on uncertain and perishable riches. The Bible has left a number of biographical sketches that teach this truth. Esau, Balaam, the rich young ruler, Judas, Ananias and Sapphira, Sam and Magus, all joined with Gehazi in foolish investments. Jesus asked us to consider his question, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And if gaining the entire world is not worth losing our soul for, what about losing our soul for a mere two talents of silver? Paul reminds us we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The only way we can take something with us into eternity is to send it on before us. But if it was not a time to seek for wealth and Gehazes, our day is even less of a time. Not only is our life uncertain, our entire monetary system in the world is uncertain. When the unthinkable was talked about just a few years ago, people were whispering that the venerable 370-year-old Harvard could collapse when their investments completely failed. This is no time to dream and scheme for future security and wealth. Are we facing deflation and depression? Are we facing hyperinflation and capital flight? Or do we in fact face the danger of both? Who knows? Is gold a safe investment or is this bauble too right now in a bubble? Have we passed peak oil or do we have another 50 years for the petroleum industry? There are a thousand voices and 10,000 opinions. But one thing is certain. This is not a time to focus on wealth building which can be swept away in a moment. 
If our income is our security, if our portfolio of investments and land is our security, we have, brothers and sisters, no security whatsoever. But Gehazi's investment was not only foolish, it was fraudulent. Though the funds were willingly given by Naaman, it was nonetheless fraud. Gehazi was the servant of the prophet Elisha. He sought to take advantage of his position in the work to make a buck. He pretended great conscientiousness. He pretended sacrifice. While he called for offerings and sacrifice to advance God's cause, he secretly appropriated these offerings for his own use. This pickpocketing of Naaman was not Gehazi's first. This had been going on for years. He was now becoming more bold and brazen. And Gehazi's leprosy was a result of his corruptness of principle, avarice, fraud, and deceit. While professing love and loyalty to God, he manifested a love of the world. He mingled the sacred with the common. Leprosy is an important disease in the Bible because it teaches so many spiritual truths. In the Bible, white represents purity and holiness, while leprosy represents sin and unrighteousness. In the sign language of the Bible, a leper as white as snow represents the hypocrite. The profession of a purity like snow hiding sin of the darkest hue. I am aware of no other disease in the Bible that is discussed in depth like leprosy. There are more records of Jesus healing the leper than any other single disease. We could say Jesus' primary specialty then was dermatology. Moses devotes an entire chapter of Leviticus to the diagnostic signs and symptoms of leprosy. It was not just the doctors that would diagnose leprosy, the priests would diagnose it as well. Every leper is to present himself to the priest. This diagnosis was not to be made lightly. This was not an off-the-cuff, thoughtless diagnosis. There was to be careful investigation over a period of time. But if after close observation, the signs and symptoms were found in an individual, the priest, however reluctant, must give him the diagnosis of leprosy and pronounce him utterly unclean, Leviticus 13.44. There were consequences to this diagnosis. Lepers were to be put out of the camp of Israel. To teach us what God regards as spiritual leprosy, God sent leprosy on four individuals, Moses, Miriam, Gehazi, and King Isaiah. We've looked at Gehazi. But let's quickly look at the other three, Moses, Miriam, and King Isaiah, to better understand Gehazi. Before Moses could deliver Israel, he must learn an important lesson about leprosy. At his call to lead Israel, God told him, put your hand in your bosom. That is, place your hand over your heart. When Moses did this, his hand became leprous. God would teach him that the uncleanness of his heart would contaminate all the actions of his hand. Gehazi's leprosy wasn't skin deep. It wasn't a momentary lapse, a simple failure. It was a systemic disease. The actions of his legs in running after the things of this world, the words of his mouth in requesting the things of this world, the grasping of his hands and unrighteously taking the things of this world originated in the unresisted thoughts that desired this world. Until our thoughts are cleansed, our actions will always be unclean. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Not even God will bring a clean thing out of an unclean. His solution is to cleanse the fountain, not filter the water. And if Moses is to have a hand without leprosy, he must have a heart that is clean. And if he is to have a clean heart, he must cry out, create in me a clean heart, O God. 
With a clean heart, Moses could place his hand back over it. The leprosy will be gone. The actions of his hands would be right because the heart is now clean. In medicine, leprosy is a dermatologic problem, a neurologic problem, an infectious disease problem. But in God's word, leprosy is a cardiac problem. Jesus said, that which cometh out of a man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Paul exclaimed, for I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Parents sometimes will bring their children in to my office, they have acne. And they'll ask me to tell the child to scrub their face with lava soap. But I have to tell the parents this will only irritate the child's skin and make the acne worse. The problem is not dirt on the outside. It would not matter what soap Pilate used to wash his hands. His hands could not be clean. When I had my surgical rotation, we were taught the 10-minute scrub. But even a 10-minute scrub will be no uh, help. Thou blind Pharisee, Jesus said, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Teenage female acne patients usually come in with their makeup trying to hide the pustules, inflammatory papules, and cysts. They may succeed with a partial hiding of the obvious skin lesions, but the underlying acne is unaffected and often worsened by the makeup. Illegal religion is useless for cleansing from leprosy. The problem is not on the surface, and the solution is not cleansing the surface. The best Phariseeism can produce is the makeup of hypocrisy to partially conceal the sin. Teenage male acne patients may ignore their acne, but this does not solve the problem any better than the girl's makeup. The lesson from Moses' leprosy is that the heart must be cleansed before the hands are pure. We are carnal, sold under sin. True cleansing must involve the heart, and only Christ can cleanse the heart. Have I seen my sin, my through and through heart uncleanness? It is this that is the cause of my sinful actions, and until my heart is cleansed, my actions will never truly be reformed. At best, I will have a few moments of not doing this or that sin, but quickly the sins will resume. My resolutions shattered in discouragement, I may quit trying or continue the ineffective struggle. Have I cried out to the Lord, cleanse me, Lord? Or do I self-righteously say like Peter, thou shalt never wash my feet? Jesus told Peter if Peter would not let Jesus wash his feet, Peter would have no part with him. The only way we can be clean, we must let him clean us. Since cleansing is the Bible's sign language for holiness, Christ was illustrating through Peter that we can have no part with him if we refuse to let him wash us, that is, make us clean, make us holy. Miriam is the second person to be struck by leprosy. She was the rescuing sister of baby Moses. She was a leader in Israel, but like her brother Moses, she too needed to learn spiritual lessons from leprosy. Miriam's leprosy was a result of her thinking that her private opinion was just as good, perhaps superior to God's inspired word through a prophet. She thought Moses' words were being influenced by man and she spoke evil against God's prophet Moses. There are some who, like Gehazi, claim to be loyal to the prophet. They 
claim to be speaking for the prophet. They claim to be on a mission from the prophet. They claim their apostasy is supported by the spirit of prophecy. There are others like Miriam who think that the spirit of prophecy is devotional, but they hold their own opinions to be superior to a prophet. They seek to bring the counsel of the Lord into harmony with their ideas instead of bringing their ideas into harmony with the counsel of the Lord. They show their contempt for God's message and messenger by neglecting to carefully study and know its counsel by their lives, by their words. They belittle God's prophet. They damn the spirit of prophecy with faint praise. Do you want to know what arouses God's anger and his indignation? The sin of Miriam, the anger of the Lord was kindled. It's a big deal when the Lord's anger is kindled. Psalm 2.12 tells us, kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. God says, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. God save us from the sin of belittling the spirit of prophecy. King Isaiah became proud of his accomplishments and he's the third that was struck by leprosy. He felt that the prophet's instruction was for a different era and didn't apply, times had changed. All the neighboring kings offered sacrifices to their gods. He felt out of date, out of step. He was embarrassed by the old-fashioned ideas in the church. He felt the ancient prophets were too restrictive. They were for a less enlightened generation. He felt his position, his success, his experience, his education could be trusted more than the prophetic writings. He was progressive. Disdaining counsel from the brethren, he violated God's command and suffered his judgments. The disease may have a variety of presentations. An underlying pathogen may manifest itself in different ways. Gehazi professes loyalty to the spirit of prophecy. Miriam belittles it. King Isaiah openly defies it, is contemptuous of it. But it is all the same disease. It is spiritual leprosy. The anesthesia of the disease makes the victim unable to feel the dangers. In every case, Though the heart is seen in the hand, it proceeds, though the problem is seen in the hand, it proceeds from the heart. Gehazi had lust of the eyes with covetousness. Miriam had lust of the flesh with jealousy. King Isaiah had pride of life. Pride is taking undeserved credit for our successes. Like Nebuchadnezzar, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? With David we must learn all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. Gehazi, Miriam, Isaiah share a common problem. They greatly overvalue the present life and the things of time and greatly undervalue the things of eternity. What a contrast between Elisha and Gehazi. Elisha prepared for his great work by faithfulness in little things, while Gehazi prepared for his great failure by covetousness in little things. Day by day, Elisha became more and more like his master, while day by day, Gehazi was growing less like his master. Elisha saw his business as serving. Gehazi saw serving as business. Elisha sees and heals. Gehazi sees and steals. Elisha refused to take money for little service. Gehazi took enough money for two people. Elisha will not take money for what God did. Gehazi takes God's blessings on others and uses them to enrich himself. Elisha, you see, was a medical missionary. Gehazi was a medical mercenary. It's interesting. 
going to depart from my notes for two seconds. But the water that flowed out of Ezekiel came from the sanctuary. And Ellen White says that was a representation of medical ministry, missionary work. But where did it end? Dead Sea. All of the advantages that flow from the sanctuary sooner or later get corrupted. All of them. They sooner or later, if they help people, people figure out a way to make money off of them. Now hear God's call for medical missionaries this afternoon. In the story of Naaman, there was a medical missionary who was a nameless nobody. But that sympathetic young person was able to point the sick to the spirit of prophecy. With satisfaction, God saw this captive made. From heaven we hear his approving voice, well done for her missionary spirit. There was another another medical person, Gehazi. His name means valley of a visionary. How appropriate. He was a visionary, not who looked from a mountain peak. He was a vision far below down in the valley. Though at first he followed the advice of the spirit of prophecy and offered the sick hydrotherapy, he was not content with the saving of souls and sought to make merchandise of God's grace. What kind of medical missionary am I? Like Gehazi, I'm being videoed. When the patient enters my exam room, I'm being videoed. While I examine the patient's skin, Christ is examining my heart. He notes my motives. How I interact with the staff is being videoed. Even when I am home with family, I'm being videoed. God saw King Jehoram and his failure to help the sick, his impatience with the patient, his failure to direct him to the spirit of prophecy. There was no condemnation for a job well done because there was no job well done. Day by day, patient by patient, I'm building my character, investing for time and for eternity. God has in his archives every patient transaction of my medical career. Lord, keep me a Christian, even though I am a doctor. Give me your love so I will not do anything merely to legally get a higher level of service on my charges. Lord, may I never take advantage of my position to defraud another. I want to answer your call to reform every practice that is not in harmony with your word. The example of Gehazi serves as a warning. The Lord will not serve with the sins of his people. Many times he has suffered calamity and defeat to come upon them because they have glorified themselves weaving false principles into their practice. I'm grateful for the next phrase. He willingly forgives those who repent, but he will remove his favor from those who go on sinning, exalting self and mingling the sacred with the common. Terrible judgments will destroy those who have misrepresented him, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, when their example is misleading. Calling it the temple of the Lord doesn't make wrong right. Carrying the name of Christian doesn't make it Christian. Doing wrong in the temple doesn't sanctify wrong and make it right. Leadership doing wrong doesn't make wrong right. Right is right. And when we use the name of Christianity to foster evil, when we justify our evil practices in the name of Jesus, we have the leprosy of Gehazi. Gehazi saw in Naaman's sickness, misfortune, and need 
an opportunity to advantage himself. Those who are like him are his children. In the Bible, lineage is not based on ancestry, but on likeness, the paternity test. God's DNA testing of who the father is, is on our actions. If I act like the milkman, the milkman is my daddy. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. God has declared that Naaman's children shall be cursed with spiritual leprosy through all time. You think of it. What Gehazi did was passed on to his children. I don't want my evil to be passed on to my children, do you? As I've examined myself in the past few weeks and meditating on this story, I've discovered the alarming spots of leprosy on my skin. Though it is painless, it infects my entire body. But I'm grateful like Naaman, I've found a cure. Though I cannot cleanse myself, I am not content to remain unclean, and there is no reason that I should be unclean for a moment. And it happened. When he was in a certain city, that behold, a man was full of leprosy, saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him. I remain unclean only if I refuse the cleansing Christ offers. Naaman brought with him over four and a half million dollars to pay for his cleansing from Elisha. He almost went home unclean. Not because he could not be cleansed, but because he would not be cleansed. He was willing to do something great, something difficult. He was willing to make a show of sacrifice, but wash and be clean seemed too easy. He almost refused the offered cleansing. Pride almost kept him from cure. He almost chose death over, over life. But how many are doing that today? If they could buy their cleansing, they would do it. If they would choose the works they think are acceptable, they would do them. But they will not wash and be cleaned, cleansed. This is not a wash once, but again and again and again. Seven times for Naaman, Maybe five trillion times for me, but I want to dip until the dipping is accomplished. It's gold, don't you? Before we are part of the church, we must be baptized. God is teaching us about his cleansing us. Before we are permitted in this way, he cleanses us. Yet some remain unclean. Jesus sadly said to his disciples, you're clean, but not all. How Jesus wanted to cleanse them all, even Judas but he refused. We are cleansed by the blood of the lamb and the water of the word. How can we be clean? Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Moses was cleansed. Miriam was cleansed. Naaman was cleansed. But Gehazi was not cleansed. King Isaiah was not cleansed. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. This afternoon, which category will I be in? Will I seek the Lord now? And when I find him, say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
If that's your desire, will you just bow your heads? Pray with me. Dear Lord, the story of Naaman is a familiar one. But it's a particularly convicting one for me. I want to ask forgiveness for the times that I've misrepresented you. Let a pretense be in place of reality. Seeking to make others think that I was better than I am and not concerned that the video was running. Lord, cleanse me. I pray that you'll help me see the needs of people as an opportunity to serve people. An opportunity to have freely, that what is freely given to us to freely give to others. Lord, I pray that a deep revival and reformation will take hold of your people, particularly those of us in medicine and dentistry. Lord, change us, transform us. Help us not to be self-deceived, self-complacent, think everything all right when it's not all right. And then when the whispers of mercy cease, probation closes, the harvest is past, and we're not saved. Lord, may that not be true of anybody here. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.